0: We'll open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of James. The book of James chapter 4 will be in verses 4 through 10 this morning. Now what does pride sound like? Think on that for a moment. How about this? That's just how I am. Or, that's just how he is. Or, that's just how she is. Or, maybe of a married couple, that's just how they are. It is awfully presumptuous to assume that we are just the way we are and we cannot be changed That a brother or sister is just the way that they are and they cannot be changed. Or that a couple is just the way that they are and they cannot be changed. The Apostle James will not let us get away with that this morning. And for that we can give thanks to God. I'll read now James chapter 4 verses 4 through 10. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, and He will exalt you. The well, true healing of the divided soul begins with true humility before a gracious God. The true healing of a divided soul begins with true humility before a gracious God. If God is not gracious, there is no answer for the split in our souls, But he is gracious, and so there is an answer. Sharp words, these are this morning. The sharpest from James, and a letter full of sharp words. But they are sharp words for a, a church, and even churches that he's writing to, with a sharp division between members, and a sharp division in the souls of the people, owing to a sharp division between the people and God. He's getting to the heart of the matter in this passage right here. We've uh, given our title for the series, uh, Undivided is the title for the series in a word. We see here in verse 8, James calls them double minded, or you could say double souled. They're split. It's a way, it's a way of visualizing what is invisible in all of our hearts to the extent that we sin against our Lord and are unfaithful in the nature of unbelief itself. Divided. Undivided is the name of the series. But then the the subtitle, Grace for Change from the Book of James. The title and the subtitle would work without this passage. There's grace throughout the book and there's this Theme of the dividedness of the people throughout the book. Oh, but this is the passage that especially gives us that header and that banner over the series. Undivided, which is the goal, wholeness, completeness, grace for change from the book of James. We do not arrive at James's letter complete and perfect and whole. God is doing a work in us, in you, in a loved one, in your brothers and sisters, and in our church, through James' letter. This book is God's means, inspired by his very spirit, of bringing about change in his people. We come now to the heart of the book. Four parts this morning. We'll review an accusation, an argument, an about-face where we'll spend an uh, an amount of time on the matter of repentance, and then we'll end with even more grace, which is where this passage ends. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. A word needed especially for those who are proud, and we all know what it is to be a little too proud. We'll begin with an accusation, a wake-up call first part of verse 4. Words you don't think you're supposed to hear from a preacher's lips. You adulterous people. Uh, James picked those words, not me. And they were for the churches he was writing to. You adulterous people. Uh, He's shaking them. He's alarming them. It's like a wake-up call. Uh, They are asleep to their own problem, and now he is making sure that they understand that they have a problem, you adulterous people. He's not addressing adulterers, uh, 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 adulterers in the church; those who are unfaithful in their marriages. The the word there is feminine as it is. He's not addressing like a group of adulteresses in the church. No, he's addressing the church and the churches themselves. And we'll see why it's important to say so here shortly. Some of us love hearing the Word, even talking about sermons. But we also love to talk about each other. Some of us love to go to church, to be seen at church, to be seen with certain people at church and not with others. Adulterers is James's word for that. Um, A faith that doesn't work. It's a faith in, in word only. Um, partiality, treating one another, esteeming one another or else neglecting one another according to what a brother or a sister can do for us by worldly measures. James' concern for these readers was that they were showing an awful lot of attention to those with an awful lot of money. As we've explored, it's interesting that James says, what do you even think you're doing? Aren't these the ones dragging you to court? It seems that, and this is not the case for the rich wherever the especially wealthy are found, it is relative, in their community, the rich as a class, as a group, were largely together and uniform in their abuse of the poor and their neglect of those who weren't rich, and their use of the legal system to put some out even, presumably, some in the congregation taking others to court to manipulate and manipulating the law in order to work them out of their their land, a little bit of a late payment on a mortgage, and they lose their property. And so what was it that they were showing favoritism to the rich? May not have been what the rich could do for them with their wealth or hobnobbing with the particularly well to do in the community, but a matter of self protection, flattering. In any case, there are some that love to hear the word and talk about sermons, but also love to talk about one another. And I mean that negatively. This church was marked by quarrels and divisions and cruel speech. The tongue is a fire. And they were full of sparks in that church. It was out of control. And even sometimes the little things that happen in our own church, just imagine, what if everyone had this conversation about somebody today in our church? Would it burn the whole place down? <laughs> Would your your behavior and the way that you talk about others, how would it go if you scaled it congregation-wide? How would it go if someone was talking about you that way? On some love to go to church and to be seen and to be cozied up to by the right kind of people than to neglect the downtrodden or the poor or, or the socially less or unacceptable These readers, I do not think, were overtly uh, involved in idolatry. He calls them uh, adulterous people. Involved in overt rejection of God. He's surprising them with this precisely because they think they're good. Now just because you think you're good with God doesn't mean that you're bad with God. doesn't mean you have their problem. It's for each of us to listen to this word uh, and for us to listen to this as a church together. Nevertheless, he shocks them with this accusation, you adulterous people, to get their attention because apparently the way that they are going about their life together as a church betrays a problem between them and their Lord, their own unfaithfulness to the Lord. And there's no small silver lining in that language of, in that accusation of, Spiritual adultery, as we'll see, it says something about the kind of relationship God means to have with us and which he's pursuing with us through James' letters. Now some say this whole passage here, because it's so strong, is reserved for a, a narrow slice within the churches James is writing to. So look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4 with me. He says... What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is this not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder, you covet and do not obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you do not ask and do not receive. You you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. And they'd say, oh, James is talking to a subset, a small subset of, of this church he's writing to. It's reflected uh, by his words there to that group in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. And there's a reason why that's a tempting argument to make, maybe on the first hand. It's kind of hard to imagine him saying this to these churches and the church maybe he has in particular in mind. But also, just listen to the way that he's been talking to them. I counted all joy, my brothers... When you meet various kinds of trials, or do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus. Listen, my brothers, has God not chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives and a grapevine produce figs? I'm only halfway through the list. That takes us up to chapter 4. I've got as many references on the other side of this passage right here that talk to his readers in exactly the same way. My brothers and dear brothers. In Christ, we're all brothers in Christ. Christ is our greater brother. Hear that for you two sisters, of course. So then, what is this, you adulterous people? Uh, did he snap? Um, was he flattering them, and then, and then, uh, and then now he really hits them with what he really, with what he really thinks. I think it's better to see this section here as the heart of the whole book, not as some six or seven verses responding to a narrow group he was addressing in the first three verses of this chapter. We discussed this a little bit as a staff earlier this week, and it was kind of plain to everybody. The first three verses kind of sound like he's addressing the same people he's been talking to the whole book. Because with all those references to brothers and dear brothers with the affection and love of a brother, James writing to them, uh, he also addressed them about quarrels and their tongue being a fire and partiality and all all of these behaviors in ways they were treating each other. No, it seems that this is the very heart of the book. Having addressed their divisions between one another, now he speaks to the problem of their double-mindedness, in verse 8, in the context of a larger paragraph in which he puts his finger on the ultimate problem, and that is their spiritual adultery against their covenant Lord. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? This is where the real problem is and this is where our real problem is and this is where your real problem may be. You're outside of Christ and you've never known true communion with the triune God. You're outside of His covenant promises and love and saving work. Then... Yes, the division in your own soul and between you and others is owing ultimately to a problem that you have with God. And you think of Adam in the garden after he and Eve sinned against the Lord. Adam, the husband, having led in all of it, watching her eat first, he goes and hides and covers himself. And when God addresses him, he, in shame, is hiding from the Lord and then blames his wife. We have a a division between uh, within him, within the very first man, Adam as he's addressed by God, that that follows because of division between he and his God. It is reflected in his words as he betrays his, his wife and lies about her and blames her for his own sin. No, we're schizophrenic in this way and our relationships are broken and ultimately it goes back to us and God. So in having come here this morning you are outside of Christ, there is an opportunity in coming to Christ to come to the God of heaven and to be made right. For Jesus bore our sins on a cross and all the sins we'll talk about this morning and have talked about in this series are forgivable because our God is a forgiving God who has sent his son to die for them. And that is a great encouragement and help and hope to us, apart from which we would have no hope But these churches are churches that are confessing this Christ. They are believing and professing and hearing the Word concerning Christ and not living according to that truth. And James is helping to bring them in a line. James is bringing healing to their relationships with one another by bringing healing first to their their inner selves and even before that, And in order to bring healing to themselves and their relationships, he's bringing healing to their relationship with God. All of that is right there baked into that accusation, you adulterous people. Yes, this is the diagnosis. This is the ultimate problem. A few quick takeaways before we we move on here. In light of last week, where we talked about peacemaking, you remember that. Um, uh, chapter 3, verse 18. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You adulterous people! Um, James, help us out, man. Doesn't seem to be helping. A few quick reflections on peacemaking. It requires grit. Uh, little memorable lines you'll hear around here sometimes. Uh, peace faker will ignore the matter of these divisions that James is addressing. Maybe they'll see the divisions between people, but they won't speak to the division within the soul, and they won't speak to the division between a man or woman and their God. Uh, James is not a peace faker. He's not just papering over things. He's not just saying, brothers, dear brothers, dear brothers, but he's also willing to say, you adulterous people. And in this, he's not a peace breaker trying to incite division and create division. Some of us are good at saying, you adulterous people, and we're happy to leave it at that. Remember, he's addressed them as brothers and as dear brothers. And after this paragraph, he continues to address them as such. He has affection in his heart for them, and he's speaking the truth to them, harsh as it is, in great love. Just imagine a a fireman that... uh, rushes to the fire uh, but tries to explain it away as something other than a fire. Um, Or a fireman that doesn't rush to the fire because it's just more peaceful to ignore it. Uh, The churches are on fire and he's calling it as it is in order that he might deliver the medicine that they and we need. James is a good apostle and pastor. Peacemaking also requires truth. It requires grit and it requires truth. He's getting down to the matter of truth. Okay, an accusation. We've heard it. We're only a half a sentence in. Uh, Let's keep going. Now an argument. James has landed a severe claim. Now he grounds it in scripture. James doesn't quote the Old Testament and Jesus in the way that some other New Testament authors will put things in quotes. But clearly, he is a man who's been reflecting on the words of Jesus and applying them to his churches. And he's a man who's been reflecting on the whole of the scriptures. He's a man filled with the Word of God. And this is why he offers the diagnosis that he does. He's an expert at people and our problems because he's an expert theologian and he understands our problems and he knows the scriptures. And so he speaks an accusation and then follows that up with an argument in order to persuade them. First, an argument from Jesus' teaching in order to reveal their posture toward God. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't serve two masters. This is right out of Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, where James has spent a lot of his time in this book. You'll love one and hate the other. So, by way of example, love money and make that your master. And you can't also love the Lord. These don't go together. Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. and He'll go to the cross and he'll send his spirit and he'll make it possible for his disciples and those who claim his name to actually love the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, strength and mind. And to turn from a love of money. And that Sermon on the Mount points us to to that need for true inward transformation. Well, James is calling us out. You can't love the approval that you get by association with some in the church or the good feeling you get by saying these words in service of your own name and reputation when speaking ill of others. And serve the Lord God and care about His name above all and value His glory above all. And value your association with Him above all for He associates with all of us and we are made in His image and bought with the blood of His precious Son. So this first quote is a quote, it's, it's, J- it's James' argument meditating on the words of Jesus to show us our true posture before God. A friend of the world is an enemy of God. A friend of the world, an enemy of God. When you hear friend of the world, what do you think? Do you think, who I'm with? So I'm friends with this person who doesn't know the Lord and so I'm an enemy with God. Well, it may be that you're keeping company that is dangerous for you and you should mind that. We have some proverbs to help you out. But that's not what James is talking about here. When you think of friend of the world, do you think of things outside you that go in you? Uh, Music, movies, the like. And there's verses to help us there. But that's not what James is talking about here. James is talking about the way that the the church is going about its life together. Uh, Its partiality based on worldly metrics. Uh, The way that they're using their tongue, which is indistinguishable from the way that the world around them is using their tongue and burning down their lives and the lives of of others. Uh, The passions that they are pursuing that lead them to fights among one another. He's saying, You look like the world. And where is all this coming from? But it's coming from within them, their own desires, which are luring and enticing them and dragging them away, which would lead to death if they follow them all the way to their their end. Whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy with God. Not a good place to be, a severe warning. James has cited Jesus to help us understand our relationship posture toward God when we give ourselves over in uninhibited patterns without self-correction and self-policing as a church to the way that the world works. So you ask yourself, is there a difference in the way that I'm talking today based on the fact that I'm a Christian? Is there a difference in the way that I'm speaking about this brother or sister or going through this specific trial of mine and speaking about the Lord and others in my trial, is there a difference between the way I'm going about this in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, in light of His ascension, in light of the fact that He'll do me good in the end. He'll even do me good through these troubles. He'll even do me good through these trials as others give me a hard time in church. Because that was one of the trials they were going through, no doubt. They're in a hard church, and sometimes we find ourselves in a difficult church. I'm sure you can say that. I can say that sometimes, not most of the time, of course. Thankful to God for that. So he cited Jesus to help us understand our posture toward God when we're friends with the world, by, by taking up the offer that our own desires hold out, and speaking that word, and Treating a brother or sister in that way. But next he goes to the Old Testament prophets. And he does this to reveal something of God's posture toward us. And it's both shocking and encouraging. Or do you suppose it is to no surprise that the scripture says, verse 5, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Now, sidebar, let me bring you in on a little, little insight here. Um, as we usually mean it, the Scripture doesn't say that. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, quote, in your Bibles, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. Hammer your Bible software from 50 directions and you won't get, you won't get a verse like that. You won't get a verse even kind of, well, you won't get a verse with that phrasing, it seems that James pulled it out of thin air. Now, James isn't going to want to undermine his own argument that he's making and where he's going by making stuff up. But is he making stuff up? As this has been uh, handled by biblical scholars, there's some debate over this word spirit. Does it refer to the the spirit of God placed within us that is jealous? Or does it refer to our spirit that is envious of others? That word jealousy there is a, the word chosen is a particularly negative word that is the word used throughout the rest of the book to speak of our own envy and jealousy. Maybe it means, translated a little different, maybe it means um, uh, the spirit inside you that God put inside you uh, doesn't, doesn't tolerate your jealousy and envy of others in the church. There's a couple different ways that this little line could go. Uh, but as it is often the case, context helps us here. So stepping back and putting yourself in James's shoes as one who is absorbed in the scriptures, and now speaking of the jealousy, je- jealousy having called his people adulterous people, and having made a clear shift to a new, a new, I'm calling it central part of his letter, I can't help but hear the Old Testament prophets in his ear. The Old Testament prophets, which regularly spoke of Israel's spiritual adultery as she pursued other gods and as she was cruel one to another in that community... Injustices against one another and idolatry having forsaken the living God who came to them and chose them and made them his own and gave them his law. She turned from him to worship other gods. And the language, mismarriage language was heavy in our Bibles. Your maker is your husband, the Lord says through Isaiah the Lord of hosts is His name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth He's called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Or through Jeremiah, surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. But we could go on and on, so that when James says, you adulterous people we immediately call up a whole panel of verses and chastisement from the Old Testament prophets to the people of Israel. He's saying, you're no different in this way. And that's not, that's not how it ought to be. For Jesus came and He sent His Spirit so that we would be changed. And James is preaching to bring that about. Or the Old Testament speaking of the jealousy of our God, we opened with a call to worship along these lines. Exodus 20, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, other gods, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Exodus 34, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous, capital J, Jealous, is a jealous God. It is right for a husband to be jealous for his wife. Many of your elders and some some others of you, certainly those of us on staff who pastor, um, lead young couples in premarital counseling. And it's a handful of weeks where we visit together over the scriptures and get to know a couple and see what help we can be for their soul and their relationship and their coming marriage by instructing them in the word and growing to apply that word in specific ways to them. And there's some different books that can help with this, but that's the upshot of it. It's time in a concentrated way around the Word of God as a couple prepares for a major commitment they will make in their vows uh, at the altar. I've never had a, 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 a to-be-husband say, what would you think, uh, Pastor, if when we were on our honeymoon, you see we'll be, we'll be in Hawaii and it's just... Samantha and I dated for like four years, and we've been broken up for a couple years now. And I really love uh, Judy here. But Samantha's a part of my life, and we've got a lot of good memories together. And I just love to spend a day with her. But Judy thinks, Judy's got, can you talk to Judy about this? <laughs> so nothing like that's ever happened. Now when you get into marriage counseling, we do end up, sinners as we are, saying the most absurd things that we can't see are equally as absurd. The rationalizations that we make for our unfaithful thoughts and actions and flirtations. And, and thankfully, by the time we're in an office, it, it's often the case that God has worked in An individual or someone has sought to help them and bring back a sinner from their wandering. And sometimes we need to be brought back from our wandering. And you are good at bringing yourselves back with one another's help from your wandering. We're all in this work together. Remember, this book of James is is not a manual for what pastors are supposed to do, but it's a manual for what every church member is supposed to be about. James is simply modeling what we all all do together in, in seeking one another's spiritual good. But that would be absurd. And the wife would rightly be jealous for her husband's affection, devotion. And that's what we mean here. And what a privilege it is to be married. Consider that. That in marriage, if God blesses you with this, you're not, you're not alone in, in the everyday things of life. You wake up with someone and go to bed with somebody. and This is very difficult because of sin. And it comes with many burdens, but it is a blessing from God. And then for us to act like we also want others to That's not right. And so, of course, it is intuitively right to us, logically, theologically, relationally, that if one is to give their, their whole life to us in marriage, that we owe them our whole life and devotion, and we don't flinch at all about calling one another to that kind of love, and devotion. And that's what James is doing here. James, at his very core, looks at the church and sees Christ's bride. And he envisions a, a happy, healthy, joyful marriage relationship. And all of this stuff they're doing is burning it down. And it's not just that they're friends with someone else because we can have friendships in our marriages with others but it's that they are flirting with adultery. In fact, it's to the point where he's able to say, you adulterous people, hopefully shocking them out of their their, uh, infidelity. Well, God opposes the proud. That's a scary thought. And he opposes the proud church that won't self-police on these things, that won't say these kinds of hard things to each other, Let us not be a church that God opposes from heaven. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. Beginning of verse 6, He gives more grace. He is tireless in His graciousness. And if you need help, if you find yourself a proud person, but, but also a desire not to be proud... Um, to be right with God, to be set right within yourself, you're conflicted. That conflict is a good thing and maybe a good sign. And you feel you need grace, but, but maybe even more than the next person. God has enough for us all, and then He's got even more, and He's got even more, and He's got even more. You don't have resources in yourself to deal with your sin. You don't have resources within yourself to turn from your sin. You don't have resources within yourself to resist the devil But God has infinite resources available to those who will come to Him and say, help me. Who will lower themselves. And it is no work, but it is an act of simply opening your arms and giving up on yourself and receiving from God the help that is freely yours if you'll ask and come to Him for it. Now, pride is a problem. It is a problem that earns the opposition of God. But the good News here is that it is not an intractable problem. James writes because he intends to humble the proud. If you are a proud person, you do not always have to be proud. You can be humbled. So what does humility entail? It entails an about face. Now we move on to verses 7 through 9. We'll include 10 there. We'll see why in a moment. It entails an about face or that very Christian biblical word, repentance, a turning from sin and dependence upon oneself and a pursuit of oneself, a uh, pursuit of your own glory for the pursuit of God, a turning to Him for help and for grace. This is a jackhammer of commands. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, be wretched. This sounds like a list, like a long list of things to do. So be humble and submit yourself and resist the devil. Like what is how do all this how does all this here relate? Here's my best take at it. Verse six: submit yourself. Excuse me, God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. These appear to be bookends, a way in and a way out of this list. And this matter of humility has been on James's tongue for some bit. We're to receive the Word with meekness, from chapter one in verse 13 of chapter three, "Who is wise and understanding among you, by His good conduct. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And then by way of contrast, he addresses matters of selfish ambition and jealousy and boasting and quarrels. So you see in verse 13, and you could say a section goes from verse 13, where he speaks of the meekness of wisdom in contrast to selfish ambition. You could see a section running all the way through verse 10 where our passage ends. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. He's speaking about leaders there. Uh, Not everyone should uh, be a teacher. They're judged more strictly. So some need to be chased away from trying to be teachers. But then he says, well, who's wise and understanding among you? Like, look around. You've got leaders. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Follow those leaders as opposed to those who are marked by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and who who are false to the truth. Quarrels, fights. And now he gets into this list. And the list is bookended by a call to be humble and a promise that God gives us grace when we're humble. And it ends with a command to humble yourselves before the Lord. I think this is really all about humbling ourselves. So how does submission to the Lord and drawing near to Him and resisting the devil relate? I think this list, this list... Which describes an about face. Describes Christian repentance. The matter of coming to Jesus for the first time. And the the daily hourly work of being a Christian. I think it describes humility. I think it directs our humility. I think it drives us to the God who gives grace. To the humble. I think it does all of that. So if humility is abstract. And the preacher was thinking. How might I apply this call to be humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Oh, James does it for us. So here we go. A description of humility that will drive us to God in humility for grace. We'll summarize it in five takeaways, if you will. First, in humility, take sides with God. Submit yourselves therefore to God, that is with unswerving allegiance, as a husband to a wife and as a wife to a husband. And resist the devil, these go together. It takes humility to resist the devil. There's no resisting him, apart from God's grace and help. And here's the promise we hold on to, that when you resist the devil, he will flee from you. Uh, that word submit to God, we can think of that like, a, like a, maybe an animal in submission, passively sitting in submission, not running about. It's really more of an active word. It's ongoing obedience to the Lord and his word. And that resistance, we might want to say, involves attack and going after the devil, but really it's more like manning the barricades. The devil is coming at you with flaming arrows, and with the shield of faith you are extinguishing them. And as you believe the word of God and submit to him and resist the devil, the devil amazingly, amazingly flees from little old you. And that's the grace of God. A first description of humility and grace. Take sides with God. That's what humility looks like. And it leads to this. Secondly, taking up residence with God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I love that command and I love that promise. Uh, You adulterous people is how the paragraph started. But what James really wants is for you to draw near to God as a bride to a groom, as a husband to a wife. And guess what? God doesn't say, I'm already working on the divorce when you draw near to him. No, the door is open. There's a place for you. If you will draw near to him, he will draw near to you. So the prodigal son goes out and squanders all his inheritance. What an insult to ask for his inheritance. Prematurely, his father is still alive. Squanders it all and comes back asking if he can only be a servant. And the father throws him a party draw near sinner to God and He will draw near to you. It takes humility to draw near to God. To, to give up on being great apart from God and making a great name for yourself. To come to God as the one who is great. And the promise, the grace, He'll draw near to you. So take sides with God and take up residence with, with God which naturally leads us to take sin to the curb I'm adding my own image here but follow me cleanse your hands you sinners purify your hearts you double-minded there is a cleansing of the conscience and a purification that happens when we're regenerated and made new and given a new heart and our guilt is taken away before God but there is also a work to do by the grace of God in fighting sin which God supplies grace in order that we might do. In order that we might actually be changed to love Him more and to love our sin less. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Or in my little phrase here, keeping with my take theme, take sin to the curb. If you have company and there's a trash bag sitting next to the trash can and trash overflowing from the can, if you're normal... You're going to take the trash to the curb and you're going to clean up the trash that's on the ground, if that's a thing for you. Or at least you should. It's okay to have things lying around when people come over. You get my point. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And in drawing near to God and in growing to know the Lord and in practicing the very presence of God and in living with him and walking with him as Enoch walked with God and as Noah walked with God and was righteous, how can it not change you? It's like having company over intuitively. You're delighted, although it can be difficult, to clean up a bit to enjoy their company. And hopefully for all the right reasons to please them, not merely to make an impression, so too when the Lord moves in, the change begins. Take sin to the curb. Fourth, take sin to heart. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And you think, where's the grace in that? Oh, it is a grace to feel the wretchedness of sin. It is a grace to recognize the darkness of sin as dark. It is a grace to see sin's ugliness for what it is. And there's a reason for joy in the Christian life. Count it all joy when you meet various trials. For God is doing a work in you to bring about steadfastness and completeness and wholeness. And I trust He's doing that in you. But there is a place for godly grief in the Christian life. And we don't live only there looking on and thinking on our sin. But certainly if we find ourselves under this scalpel, if we find ourselves on the other side justly of these words, you adulterous people, turning from that place before God to a place of fellowship is going to lead them to a place of grief over their sin and mourning and gloom. And as God transforms us, of course, we do not stay there. But sometimes we need to hang our heads in grief for what our sin has brought on others. And it may be that a brother or sister you're talking to, or it may be that you're getting a talking to right now, and you need to turn your joy to gloom and take this moment in your life and these conversations not a little more seriously, a lot more seriously. Know yourself and know your situation. And I'll trust God's word and his spirit with you. But fifth, after having taken sin to heart, take heart. For this difficult, humble path is the only way up. Which leads us to the fourth header here. Even more grace. Even more grace. This list, which I thought at the beginning of the week was roughly parallel... I think moves in a particular order. And I've given you an indication of how I think it moves as we've gone. Certain lines come before other lines here. And this one comes last. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Well, there is grace in and around and through James's letter. And it comes at us differently than Paul's words of grace and gospel. If you're familiar with the Pauline epistles. There's grace and election in this book. You adulterous people. Well God set his love on his bride and laid down his life for her in the person of his son. It's grace of election, there's grace of regeneration, as he says, you are brought forth by the word of truth, of first fruits among his creatures. There's grace and reconciliation because the work of this passage is to take you from being set against God as if an enemy to being a friend of God and entering into the enjoyment of that friendship. There's the grace of the Spirit's indwelling presence that God has made to dwell in us and in in which and by whom we draw near to God as he draws near to us. There's the grace of sanctification as God by His presence and through these words changes us so that we are no longer acting as adulterous people, but walking in fellowship humbly with Him. But for the proud church and for the proud person, and all of us find ourselves there sometimes, and some of us in this room may well be exactly under these words as His readers were. For the proud person, it is this promise of grace that you need right now. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. It is a promise of grace to come in the form of exaltation. To the the extent that you are seeking to exalt yourself and lift yourself up over your brothers and sisters by your words and your whispers and your quarreling, To the extent that you are coming to church happy to associate with some who make you look and feel better, but not with others who are more difficult or awkward or offer you no social advantage. To the extent that you are exalting yourself in those ways, you will only exalt yourself as far as you can reach or as far as you can get yourself up over other people. And it's not very high. It's a selfish ambition, James says. But there is a such thing as a holy ambition. A godly ambition. A humble ambition for the Lord to exalt you. And the Lord, I trust, is appealing to our desire to be out from under our trials by making this promise to exalt us. To vindicate us In the end, mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore until with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. O happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them the meek and lowly on high, may dwell with thee. So don't be so proud as to get used to your sin. Uh, Thank God we have a God who isn't getting used to our sin. We heard what pride sounds like. It sounds like that's just the way that I am and it's just the way that he or she is and just the way our church is. What does humility sound like? Today I am this way, but God has grace even for me. Let's pray. Oh Father, we thank you for this hard word and this gracious word. This surprisingly encouraging passage where we find out perhaps that we are engaged in spiritual infidelity and yet we come into the knowledge and the reminder that you seek the kind of relationship that a husband has with his wife of mutual affection and love and wholehearted devotion. And so we pray for help. Humbly we pray for grace today to submit to You, to resist the devil, to draw near to You, to cleanse our hands, to mourn for our sin. And we lay hold of Your promises that in doing so, the devil will flee from us and You will draw near to us. And one day, though humbled we are, You will Exalt us it's in Christ's name, we pray. Amen.